Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Zane Asher, sitting in with my colleague Julia Chatterley, and here is your Need to Know. Three times a charm, President Trump names his next two Fed picks. One is actually a big critic of the central bank. And breaking records, Tesla stocks jumped after pumping up its production and deliveries and fired. Canopy Growth co-CEO joins us about his shock exit. It is Wednesday, and this, my friends, is First Move. Welcome, everybody. I'm Dane Asher. This is First Move. It is the day before July 4th. It is half a day of trading on Wall Street, and we could see some fireworks before the shortened session is over. Taking a look at futures now, let's see they're uh, certainly pointing to a higher open across the board right now. You see green arrows uh, there across your screen. This S&P 500 is set to open in record territory after closing at an all-time high on Tuesday. The Dow and the Nasdaq are inching towards record highs as well. Relatively uh, flat, though, for the time being. Before the bell today, we've got an important reading on the health of the U.S. jobs market. ADP says that 102,000 jobs were added to the private sector last month. A weaker number than had been expected, slightly below expectations, and a sign that Friday's all-important U.S. jobs report could actually disappoint for a second straight month in a row. In the meantime, we are seeing solid gains for stocks in Europe. Italian stocks are rallying. Almost 2% after EU government said the country is making, quote, considerable improvements in getting its finances under control. But let's get straight to the drivers right now. I want to begin with some breaking news this morning. Canadian cannabis company Canopy Growth has announced the departure of its co-CEO, Bruce Linton. The stock is falling pre-market in New York. Bruce Linton himself actually joins me on the phone now. So, uh, Bruce... The statements are saying that you stepped down. You're saying that you were actually fired. Did you have any inkling whatsoever that this was going to happen? Yeah, no, I think our press release captured accurately. I think uh, subsequent uh, coverage missed that. But no, um, uh, I was terminated and the co-CEO is um, working through a transition as they search for a new CEO, um, which I suspect there is nobody listening to your program who's not thinking I should apply to that. Like, this is the fastest growth sector in the world, and these guys have the most IP and kind of the biggest market share. Do you agree, though, with the direction? I mean, you sound very sort of nonchalant about it and very sort of philosoph- philosophical, but do you agree with the direction that Constellation Brands is taking here and removing you? Well, I, I didn't step down, so I guess that means I wasn't eager to do it. But you know, we had a new board come in November one when the uh, five billion closed, and that board configuration. Uh, with essentially four appointed by Constellation, three including myself by non-Constellation. Um, that's like eight months and two days ago. And so I think uh, their intention is probably to run things a bit differently than was mine because they can now. So um, just in terms of the company's fourth quarter earnings, 
that disappointed, uh, the losses of canopy growth mounted. I mean, what does Mark Zeckelin, your co-CEO, actually need to do to take the company forward, do you think? I would say keep doing the same. Most of those losses uh, were related to what's called stock-based compensation. And so one of the things I've done from the starting of the business is that if you come to work for us and you are the guy who cleans the floor, uh, you get stock compensation, equity mm-hmm. options. And so um, because we had them out broadly, not concentrated to one person, and because the stock has gone up a lot over the last several years, you know, from a couple hundred million to nearly 20 billion, uh, you have a big number. But that number today, if people are feeling upset uh, that I'm transitioning out, means they're not leaving because they have stock comp. And so most of the loss was there. Our margin was a bit lower than people expected in Q4. It was actually a point higher than our model internally. And it's because when you build out, say, three or four million square feet of greenhouses to grow cannabis, you can't fill them instantly, which means you carry a big overhead until they get filled up. Anybody who sold on that news is saying, well, as the margin comes back to being bigger, because we did run the business a year and a quarter earlier at about a 55% gross margin, and then we decided to get much bigger. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the company can get back to, you know, higher margins very quickly as it uses up that uh, capacity. So, you know, if you're buying and selling stock in the quarter, mm-hmm. I'm not sure why you're in the con- uh, cannabis space. The cannabis space is probably the only thing in your portfolio that will uh, never be smaller. Really, the governance models are just beginning to be set up globally. And Canopy is the best position company in the world with the cash from Constellation, the IP that we created. Um, I suspect in about a couple of months or three or four months, an unbelievable candidate will be named because they will have their pick of the litter. Interesting. And and just in terms of beyond Canopy itself, just in terms of the broader industry as a whole for cannabis, what does the success of the cannabis industry hinge on, do you think? Is it about educating consumers? Is it about branding? Is it about marketing? What are your thoughts? Uh, Maybe a bit slower and more boring. I think it's um, science. I think it's intellectual property. I think it's taking the cannabis plant apart and rather than simply getting paid for THC and CBD to uh, take those cannabinoids and the other 90 or more and start to isolate them and combine them in different ways, maybe combine them with different combinations that could be as complicated as alkaloids, which lead to opioids, but if you mix them potentially with cannabinoids, maybe you can make a medical product which diminishes anxiety and manages pain so people aren't taking uh, the drug as quickly or as frequently. So I think uh, things like that and the science around that lead to all kinds of durable value, which are intellectual property claims. Uh, Then when you get to recreational, you take that science and you create products that are not available in the illicit market because they didn't have the depth of R&D or the capacity to make what I think is going to be uh, a big winner, tweed and tonic, you know, come in December to Canada. And you should be able to acquire a tweed and tonic, which will have no calories, taste delicious, have about 2 or 2.5 milligrams of THC in, have a fairly rapid effect like sipping a wine. And, you know, uh, I think people will like that quite a lot. And because it has a very low drug-on-drug profile, it means a whole bunch of folks who are taking other medications, can't have alcohol, might become customers. So that's the kind of stuff that I think is going to be very good. And if you do that really well, uh, the branding of something that's great is much easier than trying to brand Me Too products. So it's really about um, overall, though, science and research is what you're saying. Um, Bruce Linton, we have to leave it there, but we wish you 
all the best in your next endeavor. Thank you so much for joining us at such short notice. Appreciate that. Okay, so Donald Trump has announced his nominations for the two vacant seats on the Federal Reserve Board. Number one, Judy Shelton, is a prominent critic of the central bank, while Christopher Waller currently serves at the St. Louis Fed. Uh, Claire Sebastian joins us live now. So, Claire, just walk us through these two nominees, what their background is, what their experience is. Right, so Zane, uh, Trump has been trying to fill these two empty seats for months now. His last two uh, picks, Herman Cain and Stephen Moore, actually withdrew before getting close to the Senate nomination uh, process because of the backlash that Trump faced over their, their qualifications and, and uh, independence uh, in some cases. So this is his latest attempt. And certainly in the case of Christopher Waller, it is a slightly more conventional pick. He's an insider. Uh, he works for the St. Louis Fed, which is one of the 12 regional banks. He has advocated in the past uh, for central bank independence. Uh, but Judy Shelton is a little more left field. She's closer to Trump. She advised the transition team and she has outspoken views uh, on things like she, she thinks that the U.S. should return to the gold standard. She thinks the Fed isn't necessarily the best way to regulate the money supply. But both of these picks, crucially, Zane, given the market climate they were in, given the pressure we've seen from Trump towards the Fed, both of them uh, seem to be uh, of the opinion that, that lower interest rates now would be the right way forward. So that certainly fits in with what the president wants. And it's important to mention that this is not anywhere close to being a done deal yet. Uh, There's going to be thorough background checks, still awaiting Senate confirmation. And as you mentioned, um, Stephen Moore, last nominee, actually ended up withdrawing. So there's still a ways to go here. Absolutely. And they haven't even been officially nominated yet. Uh, It was just the president's tweets uh, that that, that put this out there. And the Senate confirmation uh, process could take months. So certainly when we're looking at the upcoming Fed decision, which has a a lot of people waiting for a potential rate cut, this won't impact that. But I think it's worth noting here, Zane, uh, that that, that President Trump has actually had a lot of power to fill seats on the Fed board. Of the current five members, only one uh, was, you know, was there, well, two actually, including Jerome Powell, were there before his, uh, his president term. And Jerome Powell, of course, he elevated from within. So this uh, is something that he can do. This is a power that he can wield uh, over the Fed board, uh, you know, to potentially influence decision making. And this comes at a very interesting time for the Fed, because you've got uh, the president sort of going head to head with Jerome Powell, constantly criticizing the Fed for raising rates four times last year, not raising rates so far, not, not lowering rates rather so far this year, even though we are anticipating a rate cut this month. Yeah, absolutely. This is a time when not only the president's pressure, but market expectations are ramping up for a rate cut. As I said, this, uh, these, these potential picks won't influence that. But it is interesting, particularly in the case of Judy Shelton, to look at her views. She uh, has in the past uh, criticized lower rates, just like the president. But she has recently said that she thinks that the time is now to start cutting rates. Uh, and I want to bring up a quote that shows just, just how critical she is of the, of the Fed in general. She, she has advocated uh, the gold standard. Uh, and this is the reason why. She says it is wholly legitimate and entirely prudent to question the infallibility of the Federal Reserve in calibrating the money supply to the needs of the economy. No other government institution had more influence over the creation of money and credit in the lead up to the devastating 2008 global meltdown. She continues, the Fed's response to the meltdown may have exacerbated the damage by lowering the incentive for banks to fund private sector growth. So she feels that the Fed isn't the best tool to regulate the money supply to ensure a stable financial system and a stable currency. She instead advocates the gold standard. So this is an extremely left field uh, economic view to be putting on the Fed board, Zane. Right. Uh, Claire Sebastian, live for us. Thank you so much.
All right, so on to some Tesla news now, because Tesla shares are jumping in pre-market trading as a result of record sales. They delivered, uh, the company announced they delivered almost 100,000 cars in the second quarter. And that's, by the way, more than double the number sold last year. Let's bring in Paul and Monica, who joins us uh, live now. So, Paul, this is obviously, just in terms of deliveries, obviously a very sort of closely watched number. The question is, is it sustainable? I think that is a great question. Obviously, one of the concerns, Zane, that uh, investors have about Tesla is that there is a lot of competition in the electric car market. But make no mistake, these are extremely solid numbers, especially since it is a record for obviously all of Tesla's vehicles, but most notably the Model 3. And that is the car, the more affordable electric car from Elon Musk that investors are hoping will become a mainstream hit so that Tesla can become a mainstream auto company that might be consistently profitable. So these are very good numbers. The question, of course, yes, will they be sustainable? Because you've got increased competition from Nissan, from GM, from tech companies that are developing electric cars. So Elon Musk can't rest on his laurels, but he can definitely take a victory lap this morning. That's for sure. Again, we just saw the numbers in terms of pre-market trading. Tesla shares are up about 7% or so, 6.5% or so. But they're down overall, Paul, about 34% so far this year because there have been some concerns about uh, demand. Do these delivery numbers change that? Do they assuage uh, investors' concerns when it comes to demand, do you think? Yeah, I think this is a clearly a good sign for the second quarter and will, uh, you know, obviously allay some of the worries. But also keep in mind that some of the tax credits that buyers had, incentives to purchase electric vehicles for Tesla in particular, a lot of them are going to be diminished and maybe even go away. That could be something that maybe drove demand in the short term as people rush to buy a new car at an advantageous price. Now the question becomes, is this sustainable? Because there's a lot of competition and it may not be as economically feasible to buy these cars going forward without the favorable uh, tax credits. All right, Paula Monica, thank you so much as always. Okay, so shares of cybersecurity firm Symantec are soaring in pre-market trading. That's after a report that the chipmaker Broadcom is closing in on a deal to buy the company, to buy Symantec. Uh, Broadcom investors appear less pleased because uh, their shares are actually trading 4% lower, as you see there. Matt Egan joins us live now. So, Matt, I think it's important to note, just to begin with, that this deal isn't final at all yet. It's uh, There's a report that came out, but it, of course, as always, talks could easily fall through. What do we know so far? That's right, Zane. So right now, these are just reports. We've reached out to the companies and we haven't heard any comments back yet. But what is clear is that Broadcom has been on a bit of a buying spree. You know, in 2017, it went and made a $100 billion play to try to acquire rival Qualcomm. Now, that deal got blocked by President Trump due to national security concerns. But uh, Broadcom was undaunted. It went out and last year, it spent $19 billion to acquire software company CA Technologies. And now there are these reports that Broadcom wants to double down on software by acquiring potentially Symantec for more than $15 billion. Now, Symantec, of course, is a pioneer in the cybersecurity space. It was founded in the early 80s. And today it says that it's got 350,000 organizations and 50 million 
people using its products, which include, of course, the uh, Norton antivirus platform, as well as LifeLock, which is used for identity theft protection. Now, as you mentioned, though, Broadcom stock is uh, down about 4% in pre-market, and, and that probably signals some concern about the strategy here, uh, because, you know, Symantec does face some challenges. It has uh, a lot of competition in the cyberspace. Its CEO abruptly stepped down just two months ago, and there was a uh, financial accounting investigation that led Symantec to uh, tweak its results a little bit. And, you know, history does show that there are some risks here because in 2010, Intel acquired McAfee for almost $8 billion. The goal was to try to uh, use McAfee's technology on Intel's uh, processors, but the strategy never really worked out. And they ended up having to sell off McAfee for about half the price to a private equity firm. So the question, of course, would be whether or not Broadcom will have any more success should this deal go forward with trying to integrate a, uh, a software company. Now, Egan, thanks as always. Appreciate that. Thanks, Ian. All right, so let's turn now to headlines, uh, or stories rather, making headlines around the world. At least 43 people have died in the Indian state of Maharashtra after the heaviest rainfall in 14 years. Dozens more have been injured. Seven people were killed after a dam burst, washing away houses. We know that 17 people are still missing. And six construction workers died when the wall of a college collapsed as well. And heavy rain in Japan is forcing more than one million people to leave their homes. Local officials expect the island of Kyushu to get more than a month's worth of rainfall in just one day on Wednesday. Thousands of troops have been developed or deployed rather to help emergency responders. And oh, this is a sad one. Heartbreak for England. The Lionesses are booted out of the Women's World Cup by defending champions and the tournament favourites. United States. They will either, this is the US, uh, they will either now face the Netherlands or Sweden in their final. Their semi-final match is later on tonight. Okay, still to come here on First Move, Tesla stock gets supercharged from a new delivery record. We will dig in more with Dan Ives after the break. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Zane Asher coming to you live from here in New York. Let's take another quick check of U.S. markets. Uh, U.S. stocks, as you can see, they're all green across the board. They remain on track for a solidly higher open. The S&P 500 should hit fresh record highs in early trading. That's because they closed at record highs yesterday. Uh, the Dow is closing in on record territory as well. And it's not just riskier assets that are rallying. Demand remains robust for safe haven bonds as well. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury remains below 2% today, the lowest level in more than two years. German bond yields are falling even deeper into negative territory. Yields are falling amid continued fears of slower global growth. Earlier today, a new reading of private U.S. jobs growth actually missed expectations. That was the ADP report that came in at 102,000 jobs added. Let's talk more about this with Tom Pacelli. He's the chief U.S. economist at RBC Capital Management. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for being with us. So you've got the S&P 500 yeah. in record territory, eking out slight gains yesterday, despite the fact that uh, the EU tariffs on the horizon over airline subsidies is certainly causing investors some degree of concern. Yeah, uh, look, I, I think, you know, trade has been a, a narrative that has lingered for quite some time, uh, whether it is the U.S. talking about 
uh, levying some tariffs on the EU. Obviously, the big focus is uh, China-U.S. trade relations. Uh, and, you know, what's, what's been interesting about, about that in particular is, uh, you know, I don't think enough credit is given to what happened after G20. Uh, you know, there was, there was some real momentum um, gained back. Uh, you know, and if you remember what Powell said, uh, U.S. Fed Chair Powell, he, he basically said the thing that's, that started them to really worry about what was happening from a U.S. economic perspective uh, was the lack of momentum uh, from a, uh, a China-U.S. Uh, trade discussion perspective. Uh, well, we got some of that momentum back. Uh, and so thus, you know, when we think about what this means from a, uh, a Fed policy perspective, you know, we still, we still don't think that there's quite enough justification at this stage uh, to, to look for cuts. But nevertheless, uh, the market is clearly uh, um, continuing to believe that for, for the time being, which is why we think July 10th, uh, next week, uh, when when uh, Chair Powell uh, gives gives his uh, uh, um, his Humphrey Hawkins discussion, we we think that uh, he's either going to lend credence to the idea that the Fed is going to cut, or he's going to try to walk the market back. So you don't believe there should be a rate cut uh, this month, even just 25 basis points? Just just talk to us about why not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, because if you look at the economic backdrop broadly in the United States, it's actually in very good shape. So here's a great way of thinking about that. Uh, we'll get uh, three days before the FOMC meeting, we'll get uh, Q2 uh, GDP. Q2 GDP, Q2 growth in, in the United States is actually going to look um, pretty constructive. In fact, consumer spending is probably going to have a four handle on it. So in other words, it's probably going to be about 4%. Uh, jobless claims, which is the single best metric to really gauge what's happening from an underlying labor market perspective, um, continue to improve uh, even this week, uh, even today. We just got another number. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we struggle to understand where the sort of the stress is. Uh, and again, we, we continue to hear um, folks sort of lament the plight of uh, corporations, and make no mistake, we are very sympathetic to that idea, uh, particularly with uncertainty uh, of around trade. But again, what do the data show? The data show a couple of very interesting things. Uh, for starters, capital expenditures um, is actually going to probably run at about a five or six percent pace in the current quarter, and ISM. Uh, which, you know, some people would argue is one of the uh, sort of better leading uh, uh, metrics from a, uh, a corporate sentiment perspective. Um, think about what it, we just got that number on Monday. Think about that number for a moment. Um, yeah. it, it was that, that reporting period for that number was literally over peak froth related to uh, the sort of worry about trade relations with the U.S. And, and China. And even at peak froth, the best you could do was get ISM to 52, which was basically, you know, sort of little change from the, uh, the prior month. So um, if and, and just to sort of uh, draw the point a tiny bit more, if you look at the respondent comments from ISM, it was littered with worry about China and, and even Mexico, just to drive home how sort of dated this, this, this number was. So in other words, it did not capture G20. It did not capture the mm -hmm. fact that Mexico uh, is not, no longer an issue uh, um, as it relates to trade for the United States. So what we would argue is one of these great leading metrics that people love to um, sort of talk about as it relates to the corporate sector is probably going to bounce back next month. I mean, listen, you are right. There was some momentum gained at G20 in terms of the trade truce with China and also President Trump backing sure. down when it came to Huawei. However, uh, there's a long way to go from getting from a trade truce to actually signing a trade deal. And then on top of that, reversing yep. the tariffs that are already in place, don't you think? Sure, absolutely. No one can deny that point. But what does it have to do with cutting rates right now? Right, like, 
So what I would say is, if, you know, any economist who does this for a living has a view on what that's worth, right? What trade, what, what a sort of uh, a disruption between U.S. and China trade is worth to the United States and, and, and to China. Um, uh, so we have a view. Um, uh, the economists, uh, other economists, of course, Wall Street have a view. The Fed has a view. Um, but if you are crafting monetary policy and you don't know with precision what the impact would be from a, uh, a disruption with trade, and we would argue that it's pretty modest, uh, actually. But if you don't know with precision what the impact is, then how do you know with precision what the right policy prescription is? And therein lies the problem with this notion of the Fed sort of being preemptive. The Fed has literally never been preemptive. You know, people love to talk about 95 and 1998. The Fed didn't, the Fed didn't um, respond uh, uh, proactively to something. The Fed responded to something. And 1995 was the mid-cycle slowdown. Most forecasters across Wall Street were slashing their growth estimates. Um, that hasn't happened today. Um, in 1998, All right. uh, the Fed was responding Tom. to uh, the emerging market crisis, where equity Tom. markets were down 20%. So Tom, Tom, I, I think Tom, we have to be careful with Tom, this Tom, I have idea. to interrupt you. I'm so sorry. Yeah. My producers are in my ear, and, and we have a, a hard break in a second. But uh, we have to leave it there. You bring up some very interesting points. Appreciate That's okay. it. Thanks so much. Tom Pacelli from RBC Capital Management. And uh, we do have the opening bell after a quick break in about three and a half minutes. We'll see you on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move. I am Zane Ashall. You're looking at live pictures of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, that was the opening bell there. We have got higher opens across the board for you. We saw green arrows earlier today, but actually we're starting the day down slightly. Remember the S&P 500 actually closed in record territory uh, yesterday. We'll see if... Uh, it ends up being reversed. That's the sort of downward trend right now we're seeing. Remember, this is a shorter trading week because of July 4th tomorrow. So the markets do close uh, at one o'clock today. And the Dow, I should also mention, is relatively close to record highs, although it is down slightly today. Now, before the bell, we got a weaker than expected reading on private sector U.S. jobs. The report could actually spell trouble for Friday's all-important U.S. jobs report. That said... Weaker than expected economic numbers further raise the chance for Fed rate cuts. All right, so now it is time for Global Movers. Shares of cybersecurity software company Symantec, let's take a look here, are rallying up about 14% or so. Uh, reports say Broadcom is in advanced talks to buy the company. Broadcom shares are actually trading lower. You can see they're down about 4%. And shares of cannabis firm Canopy Growth are lower towards the bottom of your screen, down 4%. 5% actually. The company's co-founder and co-CEO, Bruce Linton, is leaving the company. He told us earlier in the program that he was fired. Canopy has the largest market cap of any public cannabis firms. Linton says he believes Canopy remains in good shape. And final one, shares of Tesla also rallying up over 7% right now. The electric car company has just reported a record-setting second quarter. It delivered more than 95,000 cars in the spring. That is the best quarterly performance in its history. Analysts were actually expecting deliveries of only about 91,000 cars. It's also a big turnaround from the first quarter when uh, deliveries missed expectations. So let's bring in Dan Ives. He's the Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities, which has a neutral rating on Tesla. So, um, Dan, how much should be we be reading into these uh, delivery numbers, do you think? 
Look, it's a major step in the right direction for Tesla and Musk. I mean, the company's gone through some dark days over the last six to nine months. And I think this is something where the bulls are definitely going to digest this well. Still a lot more wood to chop, but no doubt a great first step for Musk after what's been a disaster six months. Okay, so the question is, are these sorts of numbers uh, sustainable? How does he sort of continue this good run that he's seen when it comes to delivery? Yeah, that's really what's tricky. And that's why there's a battleground stock, because many, including ourselves, think the second half, it's going to be a Kilimanjaro-like uphill battle to hit those numbers, just given what we're seeing on overall demand trends globally. And is the U.S. demand trend sustainable on Model 3? That's really the question here. It's a fork in the road situation for Tesla, but no doubt the bulls won the battle last night. Is that This has really been you know, what's really become an emotional bull bear story with many, I think, saying that uh, this is a company on the verge of death's doorstep. And I think they proved that's wrong uh, last night. So should we be focusing on total deliveries or just specifically deliveries for the Model 3? Because that's that's where their growth is coming from. Yeah, Model 3s are the linchpin. I mean, for this company to be the transformational EV play, it has to be Model 3. Model 3s came in at expectation. Now it comes down to, can they sustain that? You got Model Y going into next year. But the big question here is profitability. Because can they do this in a profitable nature? And ultimately, will they need to raise more capital? That really is the overhang on the stock right here. Even though what you saw last night, with their back against the wall, put up a great 2Q, second half continues to be the focus. So, I mean, then should we be skeptical given that Tesla essentially had to cut prices several times in order to stimulate demand? That's really the issue on Model 3, because if you think about S and X, I mean, that was really from a margin perspective the key. Now you're seeing, call it price points 37, 38K. Can they do that profitably? And you look at the tax credits, you know, yeah, December 31st, one came off, July 1st, another in the U.S. So then there's some pull forward about five to 7,000 units. That's why the question we're getting from investors, what's the run rate? Is it sustainable into 3Q and 4Q? And is this really a story that's maybe starting to turn the corner in a positive step after what's been really a debacle the first few months of the year? Okay, so these delivery numbers aside, what would you say, just heading into the next quarter, what would you say were the sort of top three major challenges for Tesla when it comes to things like logistics, for example, which has been, which has caused them some headaches in the past? Yeah, I think logistics and production have really been smoothed out. Although right now I'd say the top three, the build out and demand in China is key with Giga 3 as well as what demand looks like in China. Two, sustainable growth on Model 3 in the U.S. That's really at the crux and the linchpin. And the third, and I would really put an asterisk around this, is can they do this profitably? Because if they can't, they're going to have to raise more capital. And right now, the albatross around Musk's neck is the $10 billion of debt. All right. Uh, Dan Ives, live for us. Thank you so much for your perspective on Tesla. Appreciate that. All right. More to come here on First Move. A tribute to a man who added the horse to the horsepower. Lee Iokoka, the father of the Ford Mustang, died this week. We'll have more on him after the break.
Welcome back, everybody. In Europe, investors seem pleased that the IMF managing director, Christine Lagarde, has been nominated to head the European Central Bank. All the major markets are trading higher. Lagarde is one of two women selected for top EU jobs alongside Ursula von der Leyen. She's been tapped as the next European Commission president. Anna Stewart has the details. So, Anna, let's start with Christine Lagarde, because obviously she brings star power. She was uh, previously finance minister Mm -hmm. of France, um, but she's not an economist. So how much of a surprise pick was this really for her to head the ECB after Mario Draghi? You know what? It really was. We've been watching this for weeks and the idea was that whoever got the top job of the EU Commission president would affect who then got the ECB president position. And she was not in the top 10, I would say. As you say, she's got star power. She's got presence. She is well known across the world. However, she lacks an economics degree. She hasn't had any experience at a central bank. These are things that critics today are putting against her. Lots of people saying, though, that you know what? She's got the experience in politics and perhaps it's a sign that this position is being slightly politicised. She can find common ground amongst the ECB committee. And markets, as you say, are reacting well because they see her as very much a continuation of Mario Draghi and his policies. And so when she takes over from him, when she uh, takes over from him, just walk us through what we can expect in terms of her first priority um, as head of the mm. ECB. So first of all, this has to actually get the approval of the EU right, Parliament. Right, right. So it's no, by no means done and dusted yet. That will happen in mid-July, assuming uh, she gets an absolute majority there. What would happen next? Uh, she'd take up that position in November. I would expect to see, and I think the economists I've spoken to do today would expect to see perhaps further monetary easing, perhaps a rate cut before the end of the year. That's certainly what currently Mario Draghi has guided us towards, I would say, in his very good terms. He's guided us towards that. There was a huge fear that a hawk, a hawkish member like Jens Weidmann, could have taken this role. And in that case, we would have seen a very different market reaction. To bring up some of the bond yields that we've seen today, both Germany and France being negative for some time. But you'll see here Germany going even lower, minus 0.39%, actually flirting there with the EC deposit rate, which is minus 0.4% also France lower. And also today, Belgian bond yields, they, uh, in the 10-year, they fell negative for the first time. So we are seeing huge market reaction here, but very much positive in terms of people seeing this as a continuation of what we see currently. All right, Anna Stewart, live for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. All right, uh, so here's today's uh, boardroom brief. Beidou CEO found himself in cold water, <laughs> literally. A man just burst onto the stage and poured water on Robin Lee, Beidou CEO and founder at the company AI event in Beijing on Wednesday. The identity of the man and his motives were not immediately clear, but Lee recovered quickly, saying, quote, our determination will not change going forward. And French police are raiding Renault's headquarters outside Paris. The search is part of an investigation into former chairman Carlos Ghosn. He's facing trial in Japan on charges of financial misconduct relating to Renault's alliance partner Nissan. Renault said they were cooperating with authorities. And auto industry legend Leo Coca passed away on Tuesday at the age of 94. This man is credited with designing the iconic Ford Mustang and then saving Chrysler from bankruptcy. Let's take a look at how he'll be remembered. Lido Anthony Iacocca, better known as Lee, was born in the Rust Belt in Allentown, Pennsylvania in 1924. Trained as an engineer, he vaulted to auto industry superstardom by helping design and championing the amazingly popular Ford Mustang. This is the car that dreams are made of. 
He also fathered the world's first minivan. Dodge Caravan, Plymouth Voyager. They're the most versatile wagons ever built in America. There's nothing like them. With a master's degree from Princeton, Iacocca started at Ford in 1946 as an engineering trainee. He earned his reputation with Ford's racing program in the 60s but found his place in history with the introduction of the Ford Mustang at the 1964 World's Fair. The Mustang can be tailored to be virtually anything its buyer desires. The Mustang was an overnight success. It spawned the American muscle car movement and is still in production today. He was named president of the company in 1970. Despite his success at Ford, in 1978, he was unceremoniously fired by company chairman and namesake Henry Ford II, who told him, according to Iacocca's autobiography, sometimes you just don't like somebody. Within months, he was hired at Chrysler. The next year, Iacocca was named CEO. The company was in serious financial trouble and nearly out of business. But Iacocca persuaded Washington to bail Chrysler out with a billion dollars in federal loans. As part of that effort, he agreed to take a personal salary of just one dollar a year. Even so, he took heat from critics when he cashed in stock options worth millions. His response was vintage Iacocca. I mean, that's the American way. If little kids don't aspire to make money like I did, what the hell good is this country? <laughs> Iacocca was Chrysler's pitch man. He starred in 61 Chrysler commercials, touting American cars and American values. I have one and only one ambition for Chrysler, to be the best. He made Chrysler profitable again and paid the government back every penny. He did it with an emphasis on quality. If you can find a better car, buy it. Iacocca introduced longer warranties, lower prices, and a new kind of vehicle. The minivan sold so well, dealers had waiting lists six to ten months long. Iacocca's quest for new models actually redefined the landscape for Detroit's big three. He engineered the buyout and eventual demise of number four car maker American Motors, just so he could add AMC's Jeep brand to Chrysler's inventory. Iacocca chaired the commission that raised almost $300 million to restore Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. We remember the millions drawn here by that flame, and we renew our commitment to the ideals that kept it burning. Iacocca was known for talking tough, and he often sounded like a politician. The administration has seems to understand the importance of bargaining chips in nuclear disarmament, for example, but they don't have the faintest idea how to bargain in trade. In the 1980s, he resisted entreaties to run for the White House himself, but has campaigned since for both Republican and Democratic presidential candidates. Iacocca retired from Chrysler when he was 68, yet when the company presented him with a legacy award 20 years later, his vision couldn't be any clearer. I think the big three is coming back. Only one car was ever named for Iacocca a 45th anniversary special edition Mustang produced in 2009. What did you expect? And uh, Chrysler's parent company, the FCA Group, has released a statement paying tribute to Lee Iacocca. It says Lee gave us a mindset that still drives us today, one that is characterized by hard work, dedication and grit. His legacy is the resiliency and unshakable faith of the future that live on in the men and women of FCA who strive every day to live up to the high standards that he set. We'll be right back after this quick break.
Welcome back, everybody. Team USA are on track for a fourth Women's World Cup after knocking out England in Tuesday's semi-final. America won 2-1 and did so without one of their star players, Megan Rapinoe, who uh, was out with a strained hamstring. The competition's record viewing figures are elevating Rapinoe and some of her other teammates into household names. Let's discuss with Patrick Risch, uh, director of the sports business program at Washington University at St. Louis. So, Patrick, thank you so much for being with us. So, if the USA ends up winning this weekend, another Gold Cup back-to-back, what does that do in terms of really cementing the women's game into the public consciousness, do you think? Well, we hope that it will elevate it even more, but the evidence still remains to be seen because when they won in 2015 in Vancouver, we did see an, a, a short-term spike in club attendances, but we did not see it sustained, and we still see kind of a weak economic model at the women's club level. Now, in terms of the money that the women generate from the FIFA World Cup, at least this year, the purse is $30 million as opposed to $15 million back in 2015. However, that's still pales in comparison last year in 2018 the men's world cup the purse was 400 million so then just in terms of i mean you know there's been dramatic changes even though there's issues when it comes to um making money or generating money on either side and and the division there between men's and women you are seeing ticket sales being higher for the women's world cup i mean this is evidence that this game can really be much more commercially viable than it has in the past there's no question that the big winner here is just the television ratings, not just in the United States, which have seen about a 6% jump on Fox compared to the 2015, which is pretty impressive, given that in 2015 we were playing in Vancouver, in Canada, so it's the same time zones, whereas we have a huge time lag uh, with these games in France, and yet the ratings are up in several countries, in England, in Norway, in Germany, in Italy, you're seeing ratings records on television. So there's no question that's been possible. Zane, what disappoints me from what I've been reading and seeing and hearing is that the way FIFA has marketed the event in France itself has been subpar. You've had a lot of people that are over there on the ground that talk about how in the big cities like Paris and Nice, you wouldn't know that there's a Women's World Cup if you're walking around the city. FIFA's done a poor job of getting the word out about the event. So what's their excuse for that then? Well, I I think that part of it is... Again, you go back to the resources where those same uh, folks that have been on the ground reporting have talked about if this were a men's World Cup, if this were an Olympics, you would see much more local marketing. And and even here in the States, when you have any kind of event, when the NCAA puts on a championship, they invest resources and the local host committee in the city that the event's taking place makes an investment and makes sure that there are banner ads around town, street street, uh, poll ads everywhere. And it just seems like uh, they've been begging there. The other place, Zane, where FIFA dropped the ball is with respect to ticketing. You understand that when folks bought their tickets, they weren't guaranteed tickets together. And they didn't know that. And so many fans were complaining about not being able to sit together with their family, in some cases with their children. Now, FIFA rectified that in some instances. But again, poor planning. The last thing, Zane, is merchandise sales on site, online Merchandise sales are setting records with Nike.com, but on site, they've done a very poor job of having a lot of material there for folks to buy at the stadiums. So essentially, there needs to be a catch up for the way FIFA handles and promotes the game, uh, comparing the women's game to the men's game. But I do want to ask you about some stars in particular. Megan Rapinoe, she is 
almost, I would say, a household name at this point, particularly after some of her controversial comments about President Trump that went viral. Uh, Alex Morgan has been relatively a household name for some time in certain circles. But how do both of these women capitalize on just all the excitement surrounding the World Cup in terms of their brands? Well, they certainly want to do it right away because much like Olympians who only get the real visibility and exposure every couple of years, there's no question that Megan Rapinoe and Alex Morgan need to cash in while the iron is hot. Obviously, uh, we've known both of these women for some time, but Rapinoe, uh, not only the comments that you cited with respect to Trump, she just came out with a body armor ad, which is very, uh, uh, I think, in your face to our president. Uh, but she's also excelled on the field. So you look at all these things she needs to cash in. And of course, Alex Morgan has been a, a, a great brand for quite some time. So uh, their agents, if I'm their agents, I'm making sure that uh, we're getting out there and making sure that companies are aware of, of their interest in doing business. I mean, it's not just the fact that Megan uh, made those controversial statements. It's also the fact that a lot of people have been up in arms and outraged about the difference when it comes to gender pay gap uh, for the men's team versus the women's yes. team. And that's also something that can really propel these women forward if they continue to speak out and fight against issues like that. Oh, there's no question. And again, the interesting parallel between FIFA perhaps not doing as good of a job of marketing this event uh, and not spending the resources that they would spend in a men's World Cup versus the separate issue that you just raised, which is the women's soccer team in America now getting hopefully equal pay. And by the way, they came out with some numbers recently that the women's national team from the United States has generated $51 million in revenue the last four years, the men just a little under $50 million. So when they're in negotiations, when this World Cup ends, I think that that's going to bode well for the women in terms of getting a much better and much fairer deal. All right, Patrick Risch, thank you so much. Uh, Director of the Sports Business Program at Washington University, thank you so much. Let's take another a quick look at the markets. You've got a high open across the board uh, on this shortened holiday week. They're up ever so slightly, the Dow's up about 66 points or so. The S&P begins the territory, or day rather, in record territory again. But this is a short week and there's still some concern about those EU tariffs. Could this end up leading to a trade war between the United States and Europe? A lot of people are concerned about that. And that said, weaker than expected economic numbers further raise chances for Fed rate cuts in terms of ADP coming in at just 102,000 jobs today. That is first move. Thanks so much for watching. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.